Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for a beautiful day like today. It reminds us that the heavens do, in fact, declare the glory of God. And that is, in fact, your glory. And, Lord, we long for the day that we're around your throne, singing your praises forever. And uh, for now, Lord, we ask that you would help us look deeply into your word and see these things. And, Lord, I also ask for my uh, pre-wrath brothers and others who hold a different opinion that we may unite under the gospel and then the cross and that we may have unity in the essentials and charity in the non-essentials. And, um, Lord, we all want to look forward to your coming, and uh, we just trust you. So help us, Lord, think well on these things. Open your word to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you recall, last time we were together, we were talking about the broad day of the Lord and the timing of the broad day of the Lord. And by the way, I'm indebted to a man who really pointed these subtleties out with the day of the Lord named Reynolds Showers. I've mentioned his name before. And then I've kind of taken the ball and run a little bit with his ideas, but I just want to give credit where credit is due. And again, I highly recommend his book. He has one about the pre-wrath rapture. Another one is called Maranatha, Our Lord Comes. And it's the subtitle, I believe, is... It's called a definitive studies in, is it the rapture or something like that? So anyway, that, it's Maranatha, Our Lord Comes, the definitive study in the timing of the rapture. Maybe that's what it was called. So anyway, he does a very good job in that as well. And I, I think his arguments are just very, very well done. So with that, let me get started in talking about the timing of the day of the Lord. I want to talk about the importance of the day of the Lord. And I'm actually going to use a quote from Marv Rosenthal who wrote in his book, The Pre-Wrath Rapture of the Church, on page 117. And he was talking regarding the day of the Lord starting at the beginning of the 70th week. And, of course, that's what you and I are, I'm assuming maybe you're in my camp, we as the pre-trib side would hold the, the day of the Lord, that is the broad day, starting at the 70th week, the beginning of it. He was reacting to that in this quote where he says, quote, The false assumption just mentioned, that would be our position, is perhaps the single greatest error in the debate concerning the timing of the rapture. If expositors get the starting point of the day of the Lord right, the timing of the rapture becomes clear. It is true that the rapture will occur before the day of the Lord as pre-tribulationists contend. And so what's interesting is we have agreement with the pre-wrath side that when the rapture happens, the day of the Lord occurs. Okay, It happens fairly immediately after. Well, the point being is the real issue then is when does the day of the Lord happen? And so in a real sense, wrestling with the timing of the day of the Lord is important to our eschatology for that reason. If we get that right, a lot of things are going to start making sense. So let me refresh your memory as to the pre-wrath position. They believe that the day of the Lord starts at the seventh seal. And so Jesus comes between the sixth and the seventh seal at the rapture. And what happens then is the day of the Lord or I should say the rapture divides the great tribulation. The great tribulation, remember, and the tribulation period of Daniel's 70th week, they don't think that there's any wrath during that period. The only wrath of God happens during the day of the Lord. Okay, does that make sense? And so that would come at the seventh seal. Whereas we in the pre-trib side, we believe that the 70th week is the start of the broad day of the Lord. And so this week, I'm going to be arguing if you look up on the screen here, that the narrow day of the Lord, and what I mean by narrow day of the Lord, it's a day, and not just a day, it's a narrow period of time where the nations are going to gather against Israel, and it will culminate in one day where the Messiah himself, God incarnate, the God-man, Jesus Christ, will in fact set his foot on the Mount of Olives and he will fight for his people 
as the Lord did in the day of battle. And so that will culminate, it'll culminate right here. So that's what I'll be arguing for. Now, let me show you that the pre-wrath rapture proponents, Robert Van Campen and Marvin Rosenthal, they have a different understanding really altogether of the day of the Lord. Now, to be fair, I talked to Mike Holdegelli about this on the phone, and there are a lot of pre-wrath proponents that don't hold to all these ideas. But I just want to show you what Van Campen and Rosenthal taught And I'm going to give you, I think, five or six things. And first of all, they believe that the day of the Lord does not extend into the millennial kingdom. And you'll see that on page 129 of Marv Rosenthal's book, The Pre-Wrath Rapture of the Church. Now, the problem, let me just put up a passage right away, is that I think 2 Peter 3 clearly teaches that the day of the Lord will extend on through the millennial kingdom into the recreation of the new heavens and the new earth and on into the eternal states. Okay, and at that point... If it goes beyond that, we can just ask Jesus. <laughs> we'll be with him, right? So we know it just extends. It probably extends on to an, in, into eternity. But let me read Second Peter 3.10. I'll talk about a little bit of an interpretation issue and some textual issues. Second Peter 3.10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Now, to be fair, in Second Peter 3.10, Bob and I have a... We have a Greek Bible, and in that Bible it has what's called a textual apparatus. And in a textual apparatus, what it has is it'll have A, B, C, and D. And what, it, what these scholars are telling you is how certain they are of the manuscript evidence for any given verse. Well, D would be the worst, A is the best. In other words, they're absolutely certain this is the best reading. Well, when it's D, they're really, well, it could be this or it could be a different textual variant. Well, Second Peter 3.10 is a D, okay? So there are some textual issues, and it has to do with this burning up. What does burning up mean? Some translations, you could maybe render it being judged. And the reason why that's important is, notice here the term elements is the term stoichia. Now, you've heard Bob talk about that and about the host of heaven, and I've talked about it in Colossians and so forth. Well, perhaps you could render this as the stoichia are being destroyed in the sense that they're being judged if they are, in fact, the host of heaven, and that the earth and its works, in other words, the, the wayward works of the unregenerate, are being judged. So it would be more of judgment rather than destruction of the universe. Are you with me? However, saying that, I think that that's very unlikely in context of the rest of the passage. And that's what I want to read to you now so that you can see. And by the way, I have the New American Standard Version up on the screen as you see, Second Peter 3.10. I think they get it right. And let me explain to you why. If you turn your Bibles... To 2 Peter 3.11, I'll just start there and read through verse 12. Peter continues in this passage. He says, Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for the hastening of the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning and the elements will melt away with fervent heat. And then he goes on in verse 13. He says, But according to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. So remember, this is all in context of the day of the Lord in Second Peter 3.10. So certainly, in context, it extends to the new heavens and the new earth. So what is Second Peter 3.10 then more than likely alluding to? The destruction of the universe. Okay, And so stoichia can be taken as the elements that comprise the universe. Okay, So the debate is, are stoichia the host of heaven, the, the fallen angels, or the elements that comprise the universe, I think it's the latter. 
Okay, and, and it's obvious in context. So the point being is we're on solid ground to say Second Peter 3.10 refutes Rosenthal and in fact shows that the day of the Lord does extend into the millennial kingdom. And to be honest with you, I don't know why he makes such a big issue of that. It, it seems rather nonsensical. It doesn't have any bearing really in, on the timing of things. So anyway, but number two, the day of the Lord, they say, has no blessing attached to it. And again, this is page 128 of his book. Well, there is blessing to, attached to the day of the Lord. In fact, you look at Joel chapter 3, verse 18, the blessings associated for Judah, associated with the Lord's coming and the day of the Lord, are clearly listed. In fact, in Joel 2.31, we're going to talk about the sun, moon, and stars. Right after in Joel 2.32, it's um, all those who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so there you have messianic salvation right wedged in between two passages about the sun, moon, and stars because there's another reference in Joel 3.15 to the sun, moon, and stars in the day of the Lord. Okay, So the point being is, sure, there's blessings intertwined or mixed in to the day of the Lord. And so, again, I, I just um, I, I don't know why they maintain that, but they, they do, and I, I think they're clearly wrong. Um, they also say that the day of the Lord is a single event. Now, I know Mike Holdajelli talked to Alan Kirshner, and he does not believe that. He believes that there were many if you will, I don't want to put words in his mouth, but I would call them almost rehearsal days of the Lord in the Old Testament where we had, for instance, Babylon judge Judah for their wickedness. Babylon themselves were judged by the Medo-Persian Empire. These were days of the Lord that foreshadowed the ultimate eschatological one to come. So Rosenthal seems to be all alone on that one. Number four, the Great Tribulation is only man's wrath. And by the way, if you have the handouts for tonight, I don't like the way I worded it. I worded it incorrectly. This should be the, the way it should be worded. It, it, that's what he was saying on page 105. The great tribulation is only man's wrath. So remember, I think I proved successfully last week that God's wrath is found in the tribulation period, in the beginning of the 70th week, and also in the great tribulation period. Why? Because anytime you have sword, famine, wild beasts, and pestilence, passage after passage after passage in the Old Testament, it's God's wrath. So in the fourth seal, when we have these elements, why is it not God's wrath then? Well, because it doesn't fit the pre-wrath scheme. That's why. Okay? And so I'm saying, no, let's go with what the Scriptures clearly teach. That is, in fact, the wrath. And God uses means. In fact, he uses um, wicked armies, like even the Assyrian army in Isaiah chapter 10, for his purposes. Finally, this is the one we're going to be focusing in on tonight, but I wanted you to be aware of some of these other differences. The day of the Lord to them starts at the breaking again of the seventh seal. And so we're going to be focusing on this. I'm going to be proving to you that a narrow day of the Lord starts at the very end of the tribulation period. Okay, around the sixth bowl, the nations are going to be gathered towards Israel. Now remember, I've already laid out the fact that this broad day of the Lord that started at the beginning of the 70th week. So we're going to be focusing in on what I call the narrow day of the Lord. So now let me first of all give you the pre-wrath evidence for their understanding of the day of the Lord. And I have to say, when I initially was weighing out their arguments, I thought, well, wow, this is, seems very straightforward. And I, I thought maybe they had a good point here. But I'm going to show you why it, I think it falls apart at closer scrutiny. Joel 2.30 through 31 the prophet Joel is talking about the day of the Lord. And listen to what he says happens before it. He says, I will display wonders in the sky and on the earth. This is the Lord. Blood, fire, and columns of smoke. That's associated with wrath and warfare. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into the blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. Now, what's interesting in this passage is the term before. There's actually in Hebrew a preposition 
It's all med. It looks like it's our version of an L. And then it's attached to a word that has to do with the face. The face of, sometimes it's used to be in the presence of God. And so it can literally mean in the presence of. Okay? However, I think the best way to render it is as the NASB has it because there's this verb comes. And so I think it is a temporal referent. Okay? So in other words, I think it's, it's right here. It just indicates that this must happen before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. So I just wanted you to know I was thinking about that angle because I know how that preposition functions somewhat before that word. Now, saying that, this is how the pre-wrath reasons. What they do is they say, well, in Revelation 6, 12 through 13, which is the sixth seal, John writes and he says, I looked when he broke the sixth seal and there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair and the whole moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. Well, remember, if, Joel, if we just take Joel 2.31 and we say, well, that must happen, that is the sun and the moon before the great and terrible day of the Lord comes, well, the day of the Lord can't come before this happens and therefore the day of the Lord must be after the sixth seal. Are you with me? That's how they reason? Does that all make sense? Okay, well then... They reason further. They say, well, by golly, in Matthew 24, 29, it also talks about the sun, moon, and stars, where Jesus says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall and so forth. Well, what's interesting is one thing I want to point out right away against their view is notice, according to Rosenthal and also according to Van Campen, the sixth seal occurs during the Great Tribulation. It is part of the Great Tribulation. But what does Jesus say? When does the sun, moon, and stars, when are they affected? Immediately after the tribulation of those days. It's very important. That is a timing indicator. And what I'm going to show you is that Matthew 24, 29 is another event where we have cosmic events, and it is at the end of the 70th week. In fact, you're going to see cosmic events at the sixth seal, the fourth trumpet, the fourth bowl, and at the end of the 70 weeks. Okay, so the sixth seal is just the first ones we see in the book of Revelation, okay? And I'm going to make the case that Matthew 24, 29, the sun, moon, and stars there are associated with Joel 2.31, but it happens at the end of the 70th week. So let me show you Joel 2.31 in context. Now, this is what I think the pre-wrath, in my opinion, the pre-wrath proponents have missed, that Joel 2.31 happens in the context of the rest of Joel. So again, I'm going to put Joel 2.30 and 31 up there, but I'm going to read into Joel 3, 1 through 2, where Joel says this, he continues, he says, For behold, in those days and at that time. Now, I'm going to lay out before you that this phrase is a timing indicator that means two things. It links the previous verses to this section, but it also, typically, that phrase denotes an eschatological passage. In other words, if you see that passage, it's referring to something eschatological in the future, a day of God's judgment or the day of messianic salvation. So it indicates two of those, both of those things. So in Joel 3, and by the way, not just so says me, but so says Leslie Allen of the New International Commentary of the Old Testament. So it's not just Eric Dalman going out on a whim, but he would affirm this as well. And I'll show you the evidence for it. So let me read the passage again from the beginning. It says, For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah in Jerusalem, I will gather the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Now I have to eat a little crow here. Remember last time I was talking so big about later on in Joel, it talks about going up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. 
And I said, well, maybe that's evidence that you usually go up in elevation, and perhaps that's an indicator that this is in Jerusalem. Well, here they're going down. <laughs> that would seem to nullify my point, would it not? I have to be honest, right? So I don't know. I don't know why they're going up and down at different points. I just don't know, and I don't know of anybody else that does. So if somebody figures that out, let me know. But notice it's the Valley of Jehoshaphat. Again, Yahweh, Shofet, it's Yahweh is the judge. And again, the world has rejected Yeshua. Yahweh is salvation. And so they're going to get Yahweh as their judge in this valley. And I'm going to make the contention that this valley is on the east side of Jerusalem. In fact, it's going to connect to a great valley that opens up when the Messiah... I, this is just hypothetical. I, I can't prove it. But I think it's likely that it would connect to the Kidron Valley and there's going to be a great valley that opens up when the Lord puts his feet on the Mount of Olives. That, that very well could be the valley that is being talked about. And then he continues, he says, Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people. Well, notice it's when he takes the nations to the valley of Jehoshaphat that then he enters into judgment then. So what we want to do is we want to look at where does that happen and what timing is it. Now, let me just show you how this phrase, in those days and at that time, is used. It's used three times in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah 33:15, the Lord says, In those days and at that time I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth. Obviously, that's a messianic reference. But notice the phrase, in those days and at that time, it's identical to the one used in Joel 3. And that actually links this section of Scripture all the way back to Jeremiah chapter 32, where the restoration of Judah is foretold. And even further back, if you will, to Jeremiah 31, because that's where the promises of the new covenant, of course, that great passage in Jeremiah 31, 31 through 34, talking about the new covenant that would one day come. So what Jeremiah was doing then is he was linking all of those ideas into what will happen at the same time as Jeremiah 33:15. Well, we see that phrase also in Jeremiah 50, verse 4, where Jeremiah writes, In those days and at that time declares Yahweh, the sons of Israel will come, both they and the sons of Judah as well. They will go along weeping as they go, and it will be the Lord their God they will seek. Now, if you back up to verse 3 in the passage, the discussion has to do with this enemy of the north that comes down against Babylon. What's interesting is the Assyrians didn't come from the north. They came from the east. And so a lot of scholars are saying that was never literally fulfilled, and this waits an eschatological fulfillment. But nonetheless, the point being, Jeremiah 50 verse 4, in those days and at that time, links back to verse 3. They're connected. Okay, so we see another evidence where that's a, a linking, that phrase links to other passages prior we see it also in Jeremiah 50:20. In those days and at that time, declares the Lord, search will be made for iniquity of Israel, but there will be none. And then we see half of this phrase used in Daniel 12. And I like this phrase because even Prerath agrees that the phrase now at that time links Daniel 12:1 to Daniel 11:36 through 45, which is talking about the great tribulation. Okay, so it's another timing indicator. Now remember how important this passage was because it says... Now at that time, Michael, the great prince who stands guard over the sons of your people, will arise. And remember, the debate was over that Cal uh, Yiktol verb, amath. And what we were debating is, does it mean that he arises to fight or does he step aside and allow the Antichrist and his minions to have their way with Israel? Well, remember, we decided in context, amath is always used in Daniel 11 to mean stand to arise, just as it's stated here, the idea of standing to fight. And notice the next timing indicator and at that time. 
It continues in verse 1. Your people, everyone who is found written in the book will be rescued. And what we concluded is that being rescued at that same time, that this is all happening, would certainly go better with a Michael the archangel who stands to fight rather than one who leaves. Okay, if you're rescued, it's more than likely that's because the archangel was acting on your behalf. It's not because he left you to the devices of the Antichrist. So I think that's further evidence. And now, by the way, you can see also now at that time in Zephaniah 3.20 as well. So with that, I just want to show you that this is a technical phrase that links the prior verses to the context of what's going on in the passage that's using it. And it also is typically eschatological in nature. So with that, you have to see that Joel 3 is connected to Joel 2.31. And the thought continues all the way to Joel 3, I forget, really to the end of the Joel, okay, all the way through, all right? So let me read you verses 12 through 16. I forget how many verses there are in the, in the, the whole book. Um, verses 12 through 16, Joel 3, he continues, he says, Let the nations be aroused and come up to, there's come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Put in the sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Come tread, for the wine press is full. The vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. Now let me stop there. I want to talk about this idea of the wine press being full because this is also talked about in Isaiah 63. And this is a reference to the judgment of God. And it's certainly, it's a very interesting passage in Isaiah 63 because there's this conversation between the writer and the Messiah. And he asks questions and the Messiah answers them. And remember Edom I talked about in the book of Obadiah? Edom ends up being used as the prototypical enemies of God. Well, here Edom is being used in just that sense. And Bozrah, when you see that term or that title, that city, that's the, the capital, if you will, of Edom. Okay. So here's Isaiah 63, verse 1. I'll just read the on down for a while here. Um, Isaiah writes this, Who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching the greatness of his strength. Now listen to the, now here's the reply. And I think it's a very good case that the Messiah, it's messianic. He's replying. He says, it is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. And then the question goes out again in this conversation. Why is your apparel red and your garments like the one who treads in the wine press? Now here's the answer from the Messiah. I have trodden the wine uh, the wine through alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their lifeblood is sprinkled on my garments, and I stained all my raiment, for the day of vengeance was in my heart, and my year of redemption has come. So there you see both vengeance and blessing in the same verse. That's 63 4. And he continues, he says, I looked and there was no one to help. I was astonished and there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought salvation to me and my wrath upheld me. I trod down the peoples in my anger and made them drunk in my wrath and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. So my point being is this wine press, this has to do with the Messiah treading out his wrath upon the nations. And we see it other places. In fact, do you remember that song that was popular during the Civil War? Obviously, none of us were alive then, but glory, glory, hallelujah. Um, and I don't know, the, I wish I knew the words to it. Cause, but anyway, it talks. I think there's a mention to Isaiah 63 because it talks about treading out the wine press. In the, and that's when people, Bob had mentioned that people used to be a lot more biblically literate back then. You know, even their songs had it. 
and they just don't have it anymore. So anyway, just remember, though, when you hear that glory, glory, hallelujah, that Isaiah 63 reference, I think, is alluded to there. Anyway, now let me continue back into Joel. I just wanted, to, wanted you to see where that came from. He, listen to what he says. He says, multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Now, that decision is hey karutz, and the form would be, I think, karatz, and it means literally to decide or to judge in an irrevocable manner. And so this has to do with judgment of whether you get in the kingdom or you don't get in the kingdom. It's that kind of judgment. It's very serious. Now, I'm not saying this is the white throne, obviously, but what I'm saying is this is probably determining who gets in the millennial kingdom or not, right? So it's a very serious judgment that's being undertaken here. And then it continues. It says, For the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. The sun and moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth tremble. But the Lord is a refuge for his people. Here comes blessing and a stronghold to the sons of Israel. So let's ask ourselves the question, when does the day of the Lord draw near according to this passage? Well, when you have multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision. Okay, it's then. All right, now, the reason why I'm pointing this out is what we're going to see is that these multitudes that are gathering towards Jerusalem, that occurs, it starts at the sixth bowl. Okay, not at the seventh seal as pre-wrath maintains. Now, remember, if Joel 2.31 is linked to Joel 3, and we saw indication that it was, well, then the sun, moon, and stars are very likely the same that are alluded to there. And when does the day of the Lord then therefore break out? Well, when you have multitudes in the valley of decision. So when the nations are gathering against Jerusalem, well, when does that happen? Well, at the end of the 70th week. Okay. Now, remember, last week I had laid out the broad day of the Lord starts at the beginning of the 70th week. So what you're seeing is that this is the narrow day. These are the days that are leading up to the fact or the time when the Messiah himself will enter into history on a day where he fights against Israel's enemies, and that will be a specific day. Okay, so we're looking at the narrow day of the Lord. So this continues now into Zechariah 14. What my contention is is that Joel 3 and Zechariah 14 are really looking at the same day or the same day of the Lord, the narrow day. So let me read to you Zechariah 14, 1 through 4 where the Lord says, Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you. And he says, For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. Okay, again, I think that that's the same thing that's going on in Joel chapter 3. And the city will be captured. This is going to be very important, by the way, that the city is captured because it means they're successful. Okay, now, at least in the immediate sense before the Messiah comes. Why is that important? Because... When you look at the sixth, or I'm sorry, the, yeah, the sixth seal where you have the sun, moon, and stars, remember that's the pre-wrath definition of the beginning of the day of the Lord. Their army isn't very successful. They're actually cowering in the rocks, okay? What, what I think is, is better is in Revelation 19.11 through 21, I think it is, remember there the nations are allied with the beast, and they have now the gumption to stand and fight even against the Lord as he comes, and of course they're obliterated. But anyway, notice, and I'll point that out again later on. So let me continue. It says, The houses plundered, the women ravished, and half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Okay? Now listen to this. It says, In that day his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in front of Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from east to west by a very large valley. 
and my suspicion is that this valley, may, it's obviously on the east side, so it's abutted up against to the Kidron Valley, and that very well could be the Valley of Jehoshaphat. It's salvation for the Israelites, but it's judgment, just like the Red Sea would be on the enemies of God. You see what I'm saying? Notice also the phrase, very important, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives. Remember in uh, Acts chapter 1, the angel says to the disciples, men of Galilee, why do you gaze skyward? This same Jesus is coming back in like manner, right? Where was he standing? On the Mount of Olives. And so it's interesting. There's great correspondence. When Jesus comes, he's going to set his feet on the Mount of Olives and when he fights for his nation. Now, the other thing I'm going to show you in the next verses that I come to in Zechariah, I think you're going to see some recapitulation. In other words, it kind of goes over the same thing again. And I'll show you evidence why, because it'll talk about Yahweh coming. Verses 5 through 7. He says, you will flee by the valley of my mountains. And I think that's contemporaneous with the, you know, the thing splitting in half and him coming to fight. He says, for the valley of the mountains will reach to Azel. Nobody really knows what that is. Some suspect that it's a wadi, and I forget the name of it, but it's a wadi that connects on to the Kidron Valley, a brook that extends out to the east. I can't tell you one way or the other. That was the theory. But nonetheless, he goes on, he says, Yes, you will flee just as you fled before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, I believe 760 B.C., somewhere around there. Then the Lord my God will come. Now, of course, the term here is Yahweh. Now, we know Jesus calls himself Yahweh or refers to himself as Yahweh because he says, Before Abraham was, I am. In fact, the Jews understood it, so they wanted to stone him. So again, most scholars say this is a reference to the Messiah. This is messianic. It says, Then Yahweh, my God, will come, and all the holy ones with him. In that day there will be no light. The luminaries will dwindle. Well, again, that's a reference to a cosmic event. Very very likely it would be the sun, moon, and stars. And he continues, it says, For it will be a unique day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night, but it will come about at evening time, there will be light. And that phrase that I have underlined there I think is very interesting because it may allude to the fact this is actually a 24-hour period. This is literally a 24-hour period where there will be neither day or night. Now, the other possibility is that day just refers to blessing and night is judgment and that there will be light and so there's only blessing associated with this time forevermore. But if you take it more literally, I think it's really, I I would take it as that it's probably referring to a literal day, and it's a unique day known only to the Lord. And a lot of scholars put the only in here. They think that it's implied. So anyway, I think this is clearly the Messiah coming. He's fighting for his people of Israel, and I think that happens contemporaneous with what's happening in Joel chapter 3. Now, interesting, in Revelation 16, 18, there's also a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came upon the earth, so great an earthquake was it. Okay, now why is that significant? Well, because remember Zechariah 14, verses 1 through 4, we saw an earthquake, probably, that was so massive that the Mount of Olives split, perhaps, and it was so large that the valley was created where people could escape. More than likely, I would, if you ever saw a, a mountain split and make that large of a valley, I would imagine that would be quite an earthquake, something probably that the world had never seen. And so, in other words, what's seen in Revelation 16 and 18 at the end of the Daniel's or yeah Daniel's 70th week would fit very nicely with what we see happening in Joel 3 and Zechariah 14. So let me talk about Van Campen again, the pre-wrath proponent, some of his confusion. And so what he does is he sees the importance of Jerusalem being attacked by God's enemies, and he sees how devastating that would be to his argument. So what he does is he breaks the attack against Jerusalem into two different ones. The first attack is what he calls the Jerusalem campaign. 
And that starts at the midpoint of the 70th week in his scheme. That would be at the fifth seal. And he cites Ezekiel 38, 8 through 9, Zechariah 13, 8, Zechariah 14, 2, what we just read. And he gets this, you can see this in the book, The Sign, pages 192 through 93. Now, what's interesting, though, what he's, and, and by the way, I would take all of these things that he's referring to here as happening at the end of the 70th week. Okay, so we have a big discrepancy. He also believes there's another campaign called the Jehoshaphat campaign, and that starts before the cosmic disturbances of the sixth seal. And then he thinks that applies to Joel chapter 3, Zechariah 12. But notice he uses Zechariah 14, 2 again. And that leads me to a couple of problems that Van Campen has. Number one, he uses the same passages twice. Okay? And, he, and the reason why he does that is because they are, in fact, talking about the same event. I think it's a, a slip that is telling. But the bigger problem that he has is that the Jehoshaphat campaign can't occur at the sixth seal. Why? Well, because the commanders are hiding, not arrayed for battle, as they are in Revelation 19.19. Let me show you the difference. And the question we have to ask is, which fits better, the sixth seal or the seventh bowl? And by the way, there's a typo on your sheet. It should be the seventh bowl, not the sixth one there. Okay, so let me explain what I'm getting at. Joel chapter 3 again. Let me just read the passage, verses 9 through 10. Joel said, Proclaim this among the nations, prepare a war, rouse the mighty men, let all the soldiers draw near, let them come up, beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. And in fact, in verse 12, it talks about the nations being aroused. You get this sense that they're ready for battle. And when you read it in Revelation 19, they seem to stand their ground and they take what's coming to them, which is a good old-fashioned whooping from the Messiah, right? And, but they're not backing down. And you, you get that idea because, remember, they were asking the question, who can make war against the beast? They think the beast is unbeatable, right? And so they, but back in the sixth seal, they don't have the beast with them, and they end up cowering. And I'm going to show you that difference. And I think it's a significant difference. Zechariah 14.2, again, For I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured. In other words, that army will be successful. All right, now, let me show you where... The uh, pre-wrath rapture believes this all happens. They believe this happens during the sixth seal in Revelation 6.15 where John writes, he says, Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks. So here they're not, it doesn't seem they're very successful in battle. Now compare that to the seventh bowl into Revelation 19.19 when Jesus comes and it says, And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies assembled to make war against him who sat on the horse. What I'm claiming is that what's described in Joel 3 in Zechariah 14.2 far better goes with the seventh bowl than it does the sixth seal. Why? Well, because the armies that are assembled here have the beast with them and they expect to be victorious. And the only reason they're not is because Messiah comes and he's king of kings and lord of lords. And he is the omnipotent one who destroys them. In fact, he'll destroy, as we saw in Second Thessalonians 2.8, the Antichrist with the splendor of his coming. So again, that's why I think that the battles in Joel 3, Zechariah 14, are occurring at the end of the 70th week, not at the sixth seal, as the pre-wrath rapture would have you believe. Now, when do the nations gather? Let me show you a little diagram here. Remember, the pre-trib, what I'm saying is that the broad day of the Lord starts at the beginning of the 70th week, and then it extends on into eternity But we're going to show that the narrow day of the Lord starts right here. The pre-wrath view of the day of the Lord is that it starts at the seventh seal. And again, that divvies the great tribulation that happens before where there's no wrath of God from the day of the Lord, which incorporates the wrath of God and extends to the 
I think it's the 1,335 days or whatever it is in their view. Okay, now what I'm showing you and the passages that I've been alluding to is remember Joel 2.31 talked about the sun, moon, and stars. What I did, friends, is I attempted to prove that that reference is tied to Joel 3.14. Why? Because as the nations draw near, that's when this day of the Lord comes, right? Well, if those two passages are tied together, and I think a good case can be made that they are, that seems to be synonymous with what's being stated in Zechariah 14, Matthew 24, 29 through 31, and also Revelation 19:11, meaning that the day of the Lord happens at the end of the 70th week. Okay, And that's why I'm claiming that there's a broad day of the Lord that happens here. This one happens while people are saying peace and safety. It comes like labor pains upon a woman. Remember, Jesus attributed labor pains to the beginning of the tribulation. We saw that they can't possibly be saying peace and safety at the end here. Why? Well, because you don't go through the worst tribulation that mankind has ever known and at the end say, well, peace and safety, right? It doesn't make any sense. So 1 Thessalonians 5.3 says, no, the broad day of the Lord comes while they're saying peace and safety. But this day of the Lord is a smaller day. It's the day where the Messiah is going to come and he's going to fight on the behalf of Israel. Now, let me give you some other evidence. Look at the sixth bowl. Revelation 16.14 says, For they are spirits. Remember, they come out of the Antichrist's mouth and others. Spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole world. To what? To gather them together for the war of the great day of God. Okay, now, the sixth bowl notice is not the seventh seal. Okay, so friends, when are the nations being gathered against Israel? Well, it's at the sixth bowl. It's not at the seventh seal. And so if Joel 2.31 and uh, 3.14 are linked together, and 3.14 talks about the multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, and that's when the day of the Lord draws near, well, when do we have those multitudes gathering against Israel? Well, the sixth bowl. It's at the end of the 70th week. It's not at the seventh seal. You see the logic? And so, again, I think it's very tough for pre-wrath to argue that this is happening at the seventh seal. It doesn't fit. Let me give you three other things to think about. Number one, remember the length of the great tribulation. Remember Jesus says in Matthew 24, 29, he says, after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be dark and the moon will not give its light and so forth. Well, when is the end of the tribulation? Well, it's, it goes three and a half years. And I'm going to get into that issue again. Pre-wrath is saying, no, it doesn't last three and a half years. Well, I'm going to show you seven passages that say the Great Tribulation does last three and a half years. And you're going to have to say, which will I go with? Will I go with the pre-wrath understanding? Remember Matthew 24, 21, they bank everything on that. That Jesus said, unless those days be cut short, he's talking about the tribulation, no flesh would survive. And they surmise, well, therefore the Great Tribulation must be less than three and a half years, right? Well, the pre-trib understanding would say, well, Jesus never says what it was cut from nor cut two. So being that there are seven passages that clearly teach that it's three and a half years long, wouldn't it be best affirming those passages to be true because we all believe in inerrancy and say that, in fact, the Great Tribulation was cut to three and a half years, right? And therefore, then all of this nonsense goes away. We, don't, we, we know that they come at the end of the 70th week, and, and therefore, that's when these things are occurring. So anyway, that's a big issue, and we'll talk more about that in a bit. But notice again, number two, the near, the near day of the Lord, that's why I have the end there, the near day of the Lord draws near when? Well, in Joel 3.14, when you have the multitudes. Again, that's what's being stated here. The multitudes come at the sixth bowl, which happens here. Not here, as pre-wrath maintains 
Number three, again, the broad day of the Lord happens when there's peace and safety. Well, you can't say peace and safety here, nor can you say peace and safety here, but you could here. Okay? Now, let me explain. This is how I understand. This is the big picture of the day of the Lord as I understand it. And I think this makes sense. It makes sense to me. The day of the Lord, again, there was many days of the Lord in the Old Testament period, but there were merely foreshadowings of the eschatological day of the Lord. And what happens is that they break forth, that is the great broad day of the Lord starts at the beginning of the 70th week. And remember how I use these arrows to denote that the tribulation gets worse and worse and worse. And finally, it's going to culminate in the gathering of the nations in the narrow day of the Lord, where in fact no flesh should survive unless the Messiah came down. He does. He destroys the Antichrist of the splendor of his coming, 2 Thessalonians 2.8. And then he enters into the millennial blessings for Israel and for the church. I mean, we're all wrapped into the same promises through faith in Jesus. And so here, notice, we have the judgment phase begins with the broad day of the Lord, and the broad day of the Lord extends all the way into eternity. But there's an ultimate narrow day of the Lord, which is the day of the Lord par excellence. Again, it's the day where God... The God-man, Jesus Christ, comes and he vindicates his people. He fights for them as he did in a day of battle. That's a reference back to the Exodus when he fought for his people as well. And I'm not just saying this. It's also, and I'm indebted to Reynolds Showers for this quote of Kyle, C.F. Kyle. Um, How many are familiar with Kyle and DeLeash? Um, I know Bob knows them pretty well and uh, some others in here. Kyle and and DeLeash have a commentary series that was written in the 1800s very scholarly, very well done. And I want you to see what uh, the C.F. Kyle says about this day of the Lord in Joel chapter 3. He says, quote, It is the last decisive judgment in which all the single judgments find their end. I think, amen, brother. That's exactly the way I see it, too. That's exactly right. In other words, all of the other judgments that ever happened, in some sense, are culminated here. Now, to be fair... There's going to be Gog and Magog after the Millennial Kingdom. They come against uh, Jerusalem. God calls down fire. He judges his enemies. He brings them to the great white throne judgment. So there's other judgment. There's no question. But the point is, from an earthly perspective in human bodies, this is really the ultimate judgment that will happen. And all their judgments find their end here. So again, the broad day starts here. The narrow day is the day of the Lord par excellence. Blessing comes for God's people. And from there on, think about this, friends. From this point on, when Jesus sets his foot on the Mount of Olives, the people of God will never be abused again by God's enemies. Not ever. When the nations come against Jerusalem, God, Jesus calls down fire and he devours them. We will reign eternally secure. The moment Jesus sets his foot on the Mount of Olives, we are secure forever. And to me, that is good news. Okay, and so it is. It's blessing for God's people. So now I want to get into a, a different issue here um, about Elijah because you're going to see Malachi 4, 5, the pre-wrath proponents will throw this at us and say, well, doesn't Elijah come before the day of the Lord? And I want to address that issue and show there's a very good answer to this. So let me just put up Malachi 4, 5. Malachi writes this. He says, Behold, I'm going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. Okay, now, this is how the pre-wrath reasons. They reason this way. They say, well, in Revelation 11.3, there's this talk about these two witnesses. And let me read the passage. It says, And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. And so what they reason is that these two witnesses, one of them is Elijah. Okay, and I have no qualms with that. They're more than likely right. 
Elijah and Enoch or Elijah and Moses, whatever the case may be. One of them is probably Elijah. And what they reason is, well, this 1260 days, they take that to be the last 42 months, the last three and a half years of the tribulation. Well, if they, so in other words, remember, the two witnesses would then come onto the scene at the midpoint, right? Well, if one of them is Elijah and the day of the Lord can't come until he comes on the scene, they reason, well, the day of the Lord can't start until the midpoint. Are you with me? So that's the issue. Well, what I'm going to show you is that very interestingly, this phrase before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord, there's only one other reference in all the scriptures that has the exact same five Hebrew words. And once you know, you find it in Joel 2.31. Okay? And it's the only one. And by the way, there's one in, um, I can't remember, Zephaniah that's close, but it's not identical. These are the only two passages in the entire Bible that have the exact same phrase in that clause. Okay, now why is that important? Well, because I think there's a link, therefore, between Malachi 4.5 and Joel 2.31. Well, why is that important? Well, remember Joel 2.31, we reasoned, was linked to Joel 3, because remember, in those days and at that time, we saw in the beginning of Joel. So in Joel 3.14 and 15, remember the day of the Lord starts when? Well, when there's multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision that happens at the end of the 70th week. And so Malachi 4.5 is talking about the great and terrible day of the Lord that happens at the end of the 70th week, just like Joel 2.31 is referring to too. Are you with me? That's what's being referred to. So if the two witnesses come onto the scene at the midpoint of the tribulation, it's not a big deal because this is talking, Malachi 4.5 is talking about the narrow day of the Lord, the day of the Lord in which it's great and terrible in the sense that Yahweh's coming to fight for his people. It's great for his, you know, I don't want to make too much of the great and terrible, but it's great and a blessing for his people, but it's certainly terrible on the enemies of God. Okay, so that's how I would understand that passage. Now, let me just show you how this works out then. If Joel 2.31 is linked to Joel 3.14, and I think it is, a good case can be made that it is, and Joel 2.31 has the identical clause in it before the great and terrible day of the Lord as Malachi 4.5, they're probably all talking about the same thing that happens here. Well, remember, the two witnesses mentioned in revelation 11:3, they would come onto the scene here well then it would be no issue for us would it because they would be coming before what the great and terrible the day of the lord here and so these two witnesses very likely could rule from that point to that point and wouldn't be an issue now, i was just talking to dick about this prior i'm not sure if the two witnesses reign for this 1260 days or the earlier three and a half years are you with me i'm, I'm not sure yet i went weighing out there's many scholars who they're just divided over it when we get into the book of Revelation, I'll try to give you the best case I've got. I'm a little undecided. I tend to lean towards the latter, but I'm not sure. I'm going to teach it tonight as if it's the latter, but realize it's open and subject to... Yeah, Dick says, move it over. <laughs> yeah, you, you, and you may very well be right. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk about that and get into that issue. But let's just, for the sake of arguing, because I think Pre-Wrath believes it's here, let's just assume that it's here for the sake of argument. Now, let me just make a few points again so we're all on the same page. Remember, number one, Remember the narrow day of the Lord comes when people are saying peace and safety. The birth pangs come and the wrath of God comes, right? Sudden destruction. We proved last week that that happens here. So remember, again, that's different from this day of the Lord here in Malachi 4 or 5 that's being alluded to. All right, now, number two, the other thing I want to point out is, remember, Revelation 10, 1 through Revelation 11, 13 form an interlude, and it is not associated with the sixth trumpet in Revelation 9. You may ask yourself, well, why is that important? Well, it's important because realize that Revelation 11.3 is found in this interlude, okay? 
And what an interlude is, I'm going to be talking about the structure of Revelation, is it's a way for John to say, oh, by the way, there's more stuff that is happening from this time period to this time period, and he gives you an interlude. So what he does, in a sense, he stops the progression of the seals, the trumpets, and the bold judgments, and he gives you more information and background what's happening during that same time period, but he has stopped the progression. You, you know what I'm saying? And then all of a sudden he'll pick it up again, and he does that in 11.14. So the reason why I'm saying that is it doesn't create this havoc of our chronology of the 70th week as pre-wrath maintains. And I'll prove to you that, that in fact, that it is an interlude when we get to the structure of it, okay? The third point that I want to make is, again, the sixth bull. And I know I've hit this before, but remember, what does the sixth bull say? It says, for they are spirits. Remember, they came out of the, the beast, the Antichrist's mouth, of the demons performing signs, which what? Go out to the kings of the whole world to gather them together for the war of what? The great day of God. And I think that war, again, happens at the sixth bowl. That's where it starts, but it culminates at the end of the seventh bowl. That certainly is at the end of the 70th week. And, and again, I think Malachi 4.5 is identical to Joel 2.31. And Joel 2.31 is linked to Joel 3.14, which says these things, the day of the Lord happens when the multitudes are in the valley of decision. Well, the multitudes are the whole world as they gather for war of the great day of God. Whew, is that clear? <laughs> I, I know I'm throwing a lot of data at you, but I hope, I hope it's clear. Um, sometimes I even, my eyes cross when I go through these things. So, Okay, now I want to talk about these cosmic signs because I think these signs are important. I think it's, um, just think about this one. Revelation 6, 12 through 13, the pre-wrath view believes that the sixth seal where you see the sun, moon, and stars... When that occurs, they think that that's the same thing as Matthew 24, 29, when the sun, moon, and stars come. So they, remember, they believe the rapture and the second coming to be all the same event. And so they believe this is it. Now, the question I would throw out is, if you think that Jesus comes and that's it, that's his second coming, you would kind of expect that to be the final cosmic event of the sun, moon, and stars. Because after that, remember, in Revelation 19, when Jesus comes and fights... Revelation 20 is the millennial blessings. You don't have more cosmic events, right? Well, what's interesting is, notice, this is the first of the cosmic events. You have the same thing. The sun, moon, and stars are affected in the fourth trumpet, Revelation 8:12. You have the sun affected where it scorches men in the fourth bowl. And so what I conclude then is that the sun, moon, and stars that you see in Matthew 24, 29 and Joel 3:15 are identical, and they happen at the end of the tribulation. And not just so says Eric Dalma, but so says Jesus. Because in Matthew 24, 29, he says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall. Well, certainly the fourth trumpet is during the tribulation, is it not? And so why are they saying that this sun, moon, and stars is happening in Revelation chapter 6 and that's identical to the sun, moon, and stars in Matthew 24, 29? It doesn't add up. And now the big problem is this, and I'm going to get to the timing again of the tribulation period. Remember, they're saying the tribulation period is less than three and a half years. And I think this is a critical error. You know, when you have an airline disaster, the NTSB looks for the critical error. What started the whole thing? And I think if I were to say one thing to help my pre-wrath brothers, and I don't know if they would accept it or not, but I think the critical error is buying into the notion that the tribulation period, the great tribulation, is less than three and a half years. Because we have seven... Bible verses that clearly teach it is three and a half years. Okay, and, re- and so let me just go through them with you, and I'll make my conclusion after that. Then, Daniel seven twenty five talks about how 
the saints would be trodden upon for time, times, and half a time. Now let me stop real quick, and I want to be honest with the biblical data. Um, in Hebrew, when you're going to say something in the plural, it's im, you'll have an im ending. Well, the goyim, that'd be the nations, plural, okay? Well, when you want to say something that's dual, two, you say ayim. So the difference, you see the difference between, or hear the difference, im is plural and ayim is two or dual. Well, to be fair, the times here is just plural. It's not dual. However, the, the scholars that I'm reading, they're all coming to the same conclusion based on the evidence from the rest of the passages, but also how it's used in the plural. It more than likely indicates two because time is a singular here. So here's the point. What Daniel 7.25 is more than likely saying is you have a time, you have two times, that's three, then you have half a time. So you have three and a half. Okay? And there's almost universal consensus on that. I think pre-wrath even agrees. So we have three and a half years. Okay? Now, this is actually a very important verse, Daniel 9.27, with the timing of the tribulation, because it says that the Antichrist would make a covenant for one week. Well, in the middle of the week, he breaks it. Well, if you have seven and you break it in half, what do you got? You got yourself three and a half, right? Okay, well, that corresponds to the three and a half we have in Daniel 7.25. And then it's reiterated again in Daniel 27. It would be for time one times two all right, well, three altogether in half a time. You have three and a half. So you have three and a half years. Now, it's very important we get to the book of Revelation. Revelation 11.2 says that the holy city would be tread underfoot for 42 months. Well, that's three and a half years. Revelation 11.3 says that they will prophesy, that are, that's the member of the two witnesses, for 1,260 days. Well, that's three and a half years. You have Revelation 12.6, Jerusalem would be trampled, or the Israelites, rather, would be nourished for 1,260 days. That's three and a half years. Revelation 13.5 says the beast has authority to act for how long? 42 months. That's three and a half years. Now remember, in, in order for the pre-wrath case to be true, all seven of those passages have to be wrong. They just have to be simply wrong. They, they missed it. Why? Because it's less than that. Well, remember, that all comes from Matthew 24.21, where Jesus says, unless those days be cut short, no flesh would, be, would survive. Again, if you had two choices... And your choice is, I say that the time period that it's cut to is less than three and a half years, in which case all seven of those passages are wrong. That's one option, okay? You just have to say all seven of those passages, they just gaffed it. It's not really three and a half years. Or you could say, well, Jesus is right, and these passages are right, because when he says it's cut, unless those days be cut, it was cut from some greater time to three and a half years. And it was determined by the foreknowledge of God when he ordained things. And therefore, you can read all seven of those passages and just say what they say is what they, say is what they mean, right? To me, that's the, the more logical answer, and therefore we don't have to jump through hoops, right? So that's very important, though, to this discussion, I think. Now, let me just bring up some other issues now, and I'm going to tie it all together, and we'll conclude in a summary slide. Again, Van Campen in his book, The Sign, on page 496, he claims that this Antichrist is handcuffed at the sixth seal. And I'm going to explain why that's significant. So remember, when Jesus comes at the rapture, his claim is that the Antichrist is handcuffed. Okay? And so the Antichrist, according to them, have, they've, he's lost his authority. He doesn't really have any authority. Yet, notice the question, number one, how can the beast therefore kill the two witnesses at the end of the 1260 days if he has, in fact, been handcuffed earlier? Why is he killing the two witnesses here, that's not much of a handcuffed antichrist. You know, I wouldn't, I mean, what would you think of a prisoner who was handcuffed yet shot somebody? That's not much of a handcuffing, is it? And we wouldn't, we would say, well, that's a failure in, in the prison system. 
So I, it just doesn't make sense to me. Number two, how can the beast lead the nations to war in the sixth bowl if he has been, in fact, handcuffed earlier? Again, we said that that happens at the end of the 70th week. The sixth bowl is not the sixth seal. It's not. And that's when the nations are gathering for war. So that happens here, yet the Antichrist was handcuffed here, and yet he's not really handcuffed because he's leading the nations in war, so much so that they stand and fight, they take half of Jerusalem, or maybe more, the city's ravished, and unless the Messiah comes, no flesh would survive. Well, that's not much of a handcuffed Antichrist. And finally, remember, Second Thessalonians 2.8 said that the beast was destroyed at the parousia. He was destroyed. And where does the parousia happen according to the pre-wrath view? Well, at the sixth seal. Well, again, if he's destroyed there, how can he go on to do all of these things? Well, of course, they have to fudge on the definition of parousia. Remember, parousia to them means he's spiritually present. Well, if he's spiritually present, because remember, he's physically in heaven, that's what they're saying, while this is all going on, well, then you and I are living right now during the parousia, because Jesus is spiritually present, right? So again, it, it just there's so many problems with this view, and Again, what we're saying, remember, they would have to maintain that the Antichrist is destroyed here. What we're saying, logically, in the pre-trib position is that, no, he's destroyed at the, the Antichrist is destroyed at the parousia that happens at the end of the 70th week. Very simple. They don't have to jump through all these hoops. Number three, how can we hold to inerrancy if seven verses are incorrect about the duration of the Great Tribulation? You can hold to inerrancy if you say, well, the Great Tribulation was cut to three and a half years. If you don't, then you have to say, well, John gaffed it. He was wrong. And remember, John wrote on Patmos, certainly after Matthew penned Matthew 24, 21. So what I'm saying is clearly inerrancy is a big issue, and we should be zealous for that. We should say, no, those seven passages were exactly right. The Great Tribulation will be three and a half years. So let me give you a summary of all of this um, regarding the narrow day of the Lord. Number one, remember the broad day of the Lord starts while they're saying peace and safety. That is the world. And again, I'm saying that that happens at the beginning of the 70th week. Number two, the narrow day of the Lord in Joel 3.14 comes when the nations are gathered for war, which begins at the sixth bowl. Well, again, let me just make the connection. Certainly we see a distinction between the broad day of the Lord and the narrow day of the Lord because you're certainly not at the sixth bowl going to be saying peace and safety. You're not going to be doing that. You've been through the worst trials that the world has ever known, according to Jesus, right? So you're not going to be saying peace and safety, right? So again, that is a good indication that there is a distinction between the broad day that extends onto an eternity that starts at the beginning of the 70th week and the narrow day that starts or culminates at the end of the 70th week. Okay, number three, the pre-wrath view claims that there is only one day of the Lord that starts at the seventh seal. Okay, now... Remember, the seventh seal, I, I feel foolish saying this, but the seventh seal is not the sixth bowl, okay? And so it's a contradiction. When do the nations gather? According to Joel 3.14, the day of the Lord draws near when the multitudes, the multitudes, it repeats, are in the valley of decision, right? Well, that's not at the seventh seal. It's not at the sixth seal. It, it starts to come to fruition in the sixth bowl, which is at the end of the 70th week. Number four, there are further cosmic disturbances after the sixth seal, indicating it's not the final one. Well, you would expect when Jesus comes, obliterates his enemy, and he's about to enter into the millennial kingdom, there probably won't be any dis- more uh, disturbances, right? Well, the sixth seal has just the beginning of the cosmic disturbances. Matthew 24:29's cosmic disturbance occurs after the great tribulation is over, and again, I think it's very obvious that it's three and a half years. If you don't want the Great Tribulation to be three and a half years, then you have to say seven passages of Scripture are wrong. Um, I don't choose to do that. 
Uh, number six, the two witnesses come before the narrow day of the Lord because the link between Malachi 4, 5, remember, the, the words are identical to Joel 2.31, before the great and terrible day of the Lord. That phrase is identical to Joel 2.31. That ties these two together. Joel 2.31 is tied to Joel 3.14 because in the beginning of Joel, it talks about in those days and at that time. And the way that's used always alludes to passages prior and ties them together, as we've seen. And when does Joel 3.14 happen? Well, when the multitudes, multitudes are in the valley of decision, right? And that happens after the sixth bowl. Okay, and finally, number seven, the pre-wrath would have the witnesses killed by a handcuffed antichrist. So clearly, friends, the conclusion I want you to see is that there's a broad day of the Lord that's going to start in the 70th week. When the 70th week starts, we don't know. That's going to come upon the world suddenly. And that's the imminence. What I believe is that the rapture happens first, the 70th week breaks out, and it comes upon the world suddenly, like labor pains upon a woman. Right, a woman with child. That's what Jesus linked. Remember the labor pains in Matthew twenty-four eight to the labor pains Paul was talking about. Really, I think in First Thessalonians five three. I think those are linked because it's the same term, Odin. And therefore, there's also a narrow day of the Lord, friends, that occurs at the end of the seventieth week. That is the day that the Messiah will come and fight for us. And when He sets those, His feet on the Mount of Olives, there will never be any threat from the enemies of God and you and I. We'll live in security, resurrected bodies, and reign with our great, glorious Lord and Savior. So with that, I am um, done, and I'll open up to you. Could yeah. we talk just a little bit about the witnesses? And yeah, yeah. I yep. mean, just a simple thing. Gotcha. You, you asked about what scripture. I can't give it to you. Gotcha. A couple things. Think about if the Antichrist is handcuffed for a period of time, mm-hmm. it would be the time, I presume, in the early part, when he can't touch the witnesses, it, let's assume they're at the beginning. Sure. Okay? Yeah. And then they are the people that are really bringing the gospel to the world because there's nobody left. We yeah. left. Mm-hmm. You know, there's nobody there. They do it. Yeah. At the end of that, the end of the handcuffing, they get killed. Mm-hmm. You know, and it opens the door for all the rest of the stuff we're talking about. Right. And someplace in there come the 144,000, and now we got people. Okay. Yeah. That was yeah. sort Good. of the basis. Right, and again, um, we're going to examine that two witnesses again, and you may be very well, you may be right. In fact, I was pointing out to Dick earlier, it's interesting, when you see the distinction between 1,260 days and 42 months, it seems like the 1,260 is always used for the good people in a sense. If you, if you see what I mean, like, for instance, Israel is nourished for 1,260 days. The two witnesses um, prophesy for 1,260 days. The Antichrist reigns for 42 months. Uh, Jerusalem is trampled for 42 months. So I don't know if that gives us any clue as to what three-and-a-half-year period we're talking about. I don't know if that's conclusive. I certainly probably wouldn't bank on that. One thing I want to mention, though, is this handcuffing that you had alluded to regarding the Antichrist. That's made up whole cloth by pre-wrath. It just doesn't occur, and they try to claim that that's alluded to in 2 Thessalonians 2.8. 2 Thessalonians 2.8 directly links to Isaiah 11.4, which talks about um, the Messiah obliterating his enemies with the breath of his mouth and the sword. So the point is, is that whole handcuffing thing, I think is just a bunch of nonsense, yeah. But to your point, though, the first three and a half years, you may be right, and we'll have to examine it. In fact, there's a good scholar in the book of Revelation, and there's a commentary series Bob just bought, the Gable Line series. Um, what's that called again? The Expositors. Yeah. The Alan Johnson wrote a commentary, and it's pretty good, and he actually holds to that view in that commentary series. So, yeah. Okay, well, yeah, I don't want to belabor the thing. I'm sure we've got some other questions. But yeah. the other part is if it's a second half, 
and we talk about the idea that when they get killed, people are giving gifts to each other and celebrating. Yeah. If you look at whatever else is going on in the world at the end of the second three and a half years, nobody's out partying. I, I agree. I think that's a powerful that's a, that's a very powerful argument, and I think that that is that's why I would lean if if I were to lean towards the first three and a half years, that's that's what I'm going to be weighing as well. Yeah. Well. Logically, we went through this in Revelation at Dick's house. Yeah. Logically, it's not required that it's exactly the first half or exactly the second half. Great point. There's no reason it couldn't span yeah. parts of both. Because that it just is, says 42 months. It doesn't say it has to start at some certain time. That is really true. That's I, very good. That wouldn't shock me, frankly. I, yeah. think, I think they may span the thing. That is, yeah. Never, yeah. <laughs> I didn't even think of that. That's very good. Thank you for breaking us out of that uh, out of the box there. That's good. Yep. Well, we do have an example in Revelation of handcuffing where Satan's thrown in the abyss for a thousand years. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And he's totally ineffectual <laughs> during the thousand years. This is true, yes. That, that yeah, is true. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, that is true. And that's something we all agree on, whether you're pre-wrath or, yeah, well said. By the way, if anybody's thinking of some things to ask, uh, let me just mention this. What, I think about, what I'm thinking about getting into next time is the imminency question. And what I'm going to start doing is I'm going to eventually get us into the book of Revelation. I'm going to show you the structure of it. And as we work through it, I'm going to get into the important passages that I deem important to the understanding of the timing of different things. One day before the end of this course, I want to get into individual eschatology because there, maybe, maybe you guys have this all down, but maybe there's somebody listening over the Internet that doesn't know what happens to them when they die. And I thought we would talk about individual eschatology and the very last night, what I'd like to do is wrap it all together, show the evidence for the post-trib, maybe the mid-trib, and then show why we're pre-trib and show some of the reasons why. We're going to have to at some point get into Revelation 3.10. That'll be in the Revelation discussion. But I want to show some of the other perspectives too, the post-trib, the mid-trib position, and it will lay out why we're not holding to the post-trib position and why is it that we see that there's two parousias rather than one, and we'll give evidence for that. Yeah. Hi, I have a question. Um, there has been some cosmic things happening in the last couple years that are okay. pretty extraordinary, like when that um, one big giant star blew up and it was the brightest light that had ever been seen, and the you know, and okay, um, a couple others that I can't think of. But I mean, there have been some cosmic kinds of things happening that are pretty extraordinary. What would you call that, like? Would you call that false labor? I mean, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, great question. Yeah, yeah, it's very clever. Yeah, I think it would, and, and that's a. Gr- I'm glad you actually raised that question because it's interesting. The image, the image I used to have before, and I'm grateful for this debate with the pre-wrath brothers and sisters because it has pushed me to re-examine these things. I used to be under the impression that you and I are living right now, in a sense, during these labor pains. But what's interesting, it's a more technical term than that, the way it's used, that will break forth on the earth when the 70th week breaks out, and there'll be no mistake about it, right? So what I'm saying is right now, you and I could say we're living during pregnancy, but not during the labor pains, you know what I'm saying? And I just went through this. My wife, her water broke, then the labor pains came, but she was pregnant up until that time. And so I would say we're under pregnancy now. But certainly we're going to, I want attribute things like that to what's going on here in the 70th week. People will know, and there'll be extraordinary things where you won't be able to miss it. Yeah, that would be my surmise, yeah. So, but great question. I like how you phrased that, yeah. Well, 
Oh, thanks, Bob. Thanks for all of you being here. Yeah, thanks, you guys. Oh, I'm sorry. When it talks about peace and safety, would there be some event uh, that would cause cause us to seek peace and safety? You know, is there some... Yeah, exactly. Well said. Do you want to expound on it, Bob? That's exactly right. Yeah, if, you, if it's right to look at Daniel, which it certainly is, because Daniel's talking about a seven-year period, okay? And it says that this uh, Antichrist will make a covenant with the many and then break it after three yeah. and a half years. Yeah. Well, the covenant could be something that would cause the world to think, now we have peace. Yeah, wow. Well said. You know, it's interesting to, to add to that, that this Reynolds Showers, who I think very highly of, I think he's done some really good stuff. In his book, Maranatha, Our Lord Comes, he makes an interesting point. In the scriptures, you can build a case that, and I forget how many things, there's either four or five, but there's these certain things that had to accrue or be true in order for the world to say we have peace and safety from a biblical perspective. One would be a covenant with God. One would be Israel living in the land. Two would be the absence of sword, famine, beasts, and so forth. You know what I mean? So there would be these different parameters. Well, interesting, like Baba just pointed out, all those parameters will be true at the beginning of the 70th week. And the world will be saying peace and safety, just like the Israelites did prior to the, the, Jew, the people of Judah before the Babylonians came down upon them. What's interesting is the covenant that they end up making with Antichrist ends up leading to their destruction. Whereas when the covenant that God makes with them, when he inaugurates that, that ends up leading to peace. Do you know what I'm saying? So it's interesting, all of those conditions for peace and safety, the world will be saying that, as Bob said, at the beginning of the 70th week, and then this sudden destruction comes upon them. Because they, um, remember Jesus said in John 5, he says, you would not receive me, but you'll receive another who comes in my name. And that's exactly what they're going to do. They're going to receive... At, at Israel... It's world-centered, but remember, Israel is going to be more, and it still is even today. What is it, 55 60% of all U.N. resolutions have to do with Israel even now, and it's not going to get better, as you can see. You know what I mean? And so the world will say, hey, we've got a covenant with Israel. The Muslims aren't going to, you know, I mean, there's going to be a general sense that, hey, we've kind of licked it here. We've got, you know, I think it'll be that kind of thing. So, yeah. But great question, yeah. Well, thanks, everyone. And so, um, oh, by the way, May 18th, I'm taking a Tuesday off, and two reasons i'm going to my cabin to fish but i'm also going to do some research because i want to do some work i'm just sometimes a little tight and i want to do a little bit more work on the structure of revelation so when i present it to you i want to i just want to spend so may 18th is a tuesday that we all have off okay thanks